Please open your minds and your hearts to hear God speak this morning. The Gospel reading, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, beginning the reading with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, out of my sight, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Amen. I've come to appreciate that Faith Christian Reformed Church is a very large and complex church. 
since I live on this same street more than 20 years, I would drive by often. I knew almost nothing about this church. I don't know that I ever attended a worship service in more than two decades. But the last four years, I've had a number of opportunities to get acquainted with pieces of the congregation. So if you have celebrated your 80th birthday, I probably know you. If you haven't celebrated your 80th birthday, there's a good chance that I don't know you. And maybe there's no one here who knows the whole congregation. I had a dramatic illustration of that about 10 minutes ago when I watched a young man come up and stand here at the pulpit and I had no idea who he was. I thought, who is that fellow and what's he doing there? You see, he hasn't celebrated his 80th birthday, so I don't know him. This is a large and complex church that I'm growing in my appreciation of. And I want to talk to you this morning about this church, but not just about this church, about the whole church of Jesus Christ in our generation. I'm going to talk in four points from this passage. First of all, about the owner of it. Second, the basis for it the power of it, and finally, the cost of being the church. When we confess in the Apostles' Creed, I believe a holy Catholic church, we are looking back to Matthew chapter 16. And in this passage, at the very beginning, it becomes clear that there is a Jesus who is speaking to us And who says, I will build my church. Now, he gets into that by having an opinion poll. Very modern idea. No doubt some of you have been called in the last week on the phone and said, I'd like to conduct a poll with you. Jesus said, "Uh, you know, it's been a couple of years, disciples. Who are people saying I am now after a couple of years? Well, they're saying you're someone special. You're a, oh, they think of Elijah, or they name Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Now, it's, it's not actually that they thought he was Elijah or Jeremiah, but he's, he's like them. You know, Elijah was one who worked miracles, and this Jesus works miracles. Jeremiah was a suffering prophet, and of course, they'll see later how Jesus is that. They certainly, what's missing, though, is no one in the public opinion poll is saying, oh, Jesus, you are the Messiah. That's not part of the picture at all. And so then Jesus narrows the opinion and says, well, what about the 12 of you? What do you think? And it's at that moment that Peter, in maybe his greatest experience in his three years with Jesus, Peter blurts out, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Ah, you're that Messiah. You just described yourself as the son of man. That's pretty lofty, but you're loftier than that. You're the son of God. And 
the light, this is really the first time that we, that we know of that Jesus has tried to, to draw out from his disciples how much are they getting of what he's teaching. He's had two years with them, and it's, it's no doubt been a year, two years of growing conviction about how special this person is, but this is the first time it really comes out in the open. And it's not at the peak of the popularity of Jesus. His popularity has already peaked, and the opposition is developing by now. He's, he's no longer at the top of his game. But it's just then that Peter understands. And it's not his response to a miracle particularly or to a popular teacher. It's far deeper than that. And Jesus points out how deep it is. He says, you have gotten this as a revelation from God. It's by the grace of God that Peter has caught who this Jesus is. And in response, it becomes clear that this Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is going to establish a church that will be his church. He is the owner. His name is Jesus, and it is the church of Jesus. It is owned by the one who is God and has become man. So the next time you're asked, who owns your church? Your immediate answer is, Jesus owns my church. It's not owned by the Pope. It's not owned by the bishops. It's not owned by the elders of this congregation. It's not owned by the deacons. It's not even owned by the members, for it is the church of Jesus the Christ, the one who was revealed by God to Peter. Well, if Jesus is the owner, what's the foundation, what's the basis for this church that he is going to build? And that comes out in that very famous verse of 18, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now let's back up a bit. In the Gospel of John, in the opening chapter, we have the story of the calling of Peter to be a disciple. And at verse 41 of that opening chapter, Jesus says to this man, You are Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John. But you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now, the common language of the day was Aramaic, and Cephas is an Aramaic word, an Aramaic name, but when you put it over into Greek, it becomes Peter, and it means rock. So in Matthew 16, Jesus starts by calling him Cephas, but then he calls him Peter. Rock. Started, started, I say, should say he started by calling him Simon, and then he calls him Peter the Rock. Upon this Petra, I will build my church. 
And for hundreds and perhaps two thousands of years, people have struggled to understand this particular verse. What is it that Jesus is saying on this occasion? Now, if we were Roman Catholic this morning, we would have a clear answer to that. From the Roman Catholic perspective, clearly it is saying, Jesus is saying, I'm building my church on Peter, whom we know as the first pope. To defend that, the Roman Catholic folks will say, go to the early church fathers for proof that that's the way they understood it. But that creates some difficulty because, like today, back in the early church, the fathers didn't all agree with one another. In fact, they had five different answers to what was going on in this verse. Some of them said, indeed, Peter is the rock. Others said, well, no, Peter is a representative of the apostles, and the apostles together are the rock. Still others said, no, what you should focus on here is Peter's faith his faith is the rock. And still others said, no, you, you're not seeing the hands of Jesus. He said, you are Peter, and on this rock, on Christ, I will build my church. And still others said, no, no, no. It's the whole Christian group that is the rock. And so here we are 2,000 years later, and Roman Catholics and Protestants still disagree about just what does the text say and what did Jesus mean. Well, I tend not to go to extremes either direction, so let me suggest that maybe there's some truth in all five answers. That maybe it's a combination of those answers, that Christ will indeed build his church on Peter and on people like Peter who believe the truth about Jesus and who publicly confess that truth. Surely, Peter and the other apostles were indeed the first to believe in Jesus Christ, as we see it in this text. And therefore, the apostles are indeed the foundation of the church. Well, the call is, on this rock I will build my church. The church, then, is based on an open confession of allegiance to Jesus, the Son of the living God. Christ builds his church on the rock of people who confess him as the true one. Confess him in what way? Well, confess him as the one who died and rose. And Peter wasn't quite there yet, was he? Because when we get down to verse 21, Jesus, in effect, is saying, well, you've grasped something now that you didn't get before. You understand now about who I am and about my church. Let me tell you more. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And although Peter now understood who Jesus was, he was not able to receive that new word of revelation. He did not yet understand what Jesus came to do. And like Satan, Peter tempted Jesus not to do it. You remember at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, he's out 
in the wilderness for 40 days, and he hears temptations from Peter, from, G from Satan, you don't need to go to the cross, Jesus. There is a shortcut. Don't go. And here is an echo from Peter saying, no, don't go, Jesus. And of necessity, even as Jesus rebukes Satan, he has now to rebuke Peter. He cannot listen to that because the basis of the church, the foundation of the church is the Christ, but it is the Christ who has been crucified and the Christ who has risen from the dead. The glue of the church, the thing that holds the church together and that makes it a church is this person, Jesus. And this Jesus is God, and he is man, and he has died in the place of sinners who he has risen from the dead. So what's the church from this text? The church is the group of people who openly give themselves in faith to Jesus Christ. And so I've been listening to Pastor Greg address you this morning, and several times I heard him say, Church, right on, church, church. Those who give themselves in faith in an open way to Jesus the Christ. No building, that's not it. The church is people, the people who are relying on the Jesus. Well, let's go on to the third point, the power of the church. Jesus is the owner. I will build my church. Jesus crucified, raised from the dead. That's the basis for the church through Peter and the apostles on to us. But now the power of the church... and. And this causes me to scratch my head a bit. When I get to verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What do you make of that text? Many years ago, I started out my ministry as a pastor in a small town in western Pennsylvania. Had a local newspaper, and one day I picked up the local newspaper and found a story about a pastor in my town who couldn't get into his church because he had no key. And this, there wasn't a lot of news in town that day, so that made the newspaper. And the reason he couldn't get in, apparently there was a little stress between him and his congregation. He went away on a week's vacation, and while he was gone, all the locks in the whole building were changed. He could come back, but he could no longer get in to the church building. He quickly realized that the key is the symbol of power. No key? You may be the pastor, but you're on the outside. Now, I, so far, have watched uh, four grandchildren turn 16, and every 16-year-old understands this, the power of the key. On the 16th birthday, or shortly thereafter, you begin to get some power with that car key that you did not have before. 
Here it is, 2,000 years ago. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will let you control the door to heaven. That pastor couldn't control the door to his own church building, but you can control the door to heaven. Here it sounds like it's given to Peter. Two chapters later, it comes up again and it's given to the apostles. You think, wow, what power to be able to lock the door to heaven. Well, it comes up one more time in the very last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. I found it one more time at verse 7. These, it's to the church in Philadelphia. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So the first time it seems to be given to Peter, the second time the apostles, and the third time it's clarified, it's the key that is owned by Jesus, the Messiah. He has the control, ultimately, of the key to heaven. But he delegated some of that power to the apostles. Strange story. Well, the strange story actually is in the book of Acts. It's a story of Simon. You could read it in chapter 8. Simon was a sorcerer, a magician. And when the apostles came to town, some of the followers of Simon heard the gospel and turned to Jesus. And then the text says that Simon did too. Simon believed and was baptized. And it's you know, a wonderful story until the next paragraph. In the next paragraph, Simon was watching and the apostles prayed and the Holy Spirit came down in a powerful way on a set of people. And Simon said, wow, I've had magical powers in the past, but if I could have that. And he went to the apostles and said, I'll give you some money if you will give me the power to do what you just did. And Peter exercised the key of the kingdom and said, Simon, you, you have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. You are on the outside. And he was excluded. The key shut him out because he obviously had not truly been converted. The keys gave the apostles the right to make rules of membership in the church. Well, we know what the rules of membership are. They are repentance and faith followed by obedience. Repentance from the old way, faith in the Jesus followed by a new way of living. So what now? Where are the keys today? I don't think we have any apostles of the same kind that we had in the first century. Those apostles of that first century have been replaced for us by a combination of the Bible and the elders. Now, the Bible doesn't make mistakes, but frankly, the elders do. But the elders with their Bibles have the keys today because the elders can use their Bibles to decide whether you can be a member of the church. It's not that the elders make the rules. The rules are in the Bible, and the elders apply them. You want to become a member of the local church? The elders examine you for repentance and faith followed by obedience. 
and on rare, terrible occasions, the elders must conclude that repentance and faith followed by obedience are not there, and there is exclusion. This is a hard, hard thing. That's my best understanding of what's going on with the power of the keys. Finally, let's look at the cost of being the church. That shows up beginning at verse 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What's it cost for us to be the church? Well, the church has to resemble Jesus. Christians have to resemble Jesus. And the Christian life is a process by which the Holy Spirit molds people into the image of Jesus. And Jesus spells it out in powerful words here in this text. He says he has to deny himself. He has to forget himself. He has to quit looking out for number one. I can no longer put my own desires first. That Christ came to earth for the welfare of sinners, not for his own welfare. That's the way he modeled it. And that we have to learn also to put someone else's welfare ahead of our own. <laughs> okay, every message you will hear this week is the exact opposite of that. So it's hard to hear this. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Literally, Jesus later had to walk the streets of Jerusalem carrying a heavy piece of wood on his back, a cross that was embarrassing and humiliating and heavy and showed that he was an outcast from society, that he was a condemned criminal. And he says that Christians can expect a cross of persecution, of suffering, and of death. There's no promise that we will have it made. In my home, about 95% of the time, I'm the one who prays just before the meal. But a day or two ago, my wife said, I'd like to pray this time. Okay. And when she prayed, what she was praying for was that Christian in Iran who is in jail, who is suffering, who is literally experiencing this text. Jesus says, follow me. And to the extent that Christians refuse to follow and to obey, to that extent, we cease to be the church. Peter still had to learn to follow a crucified Jesus, even though it would eventually cost him his life. That's our call.
If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me.